0: So when we talk about being for the city, do you understand that God has always been for the city? That when we say that Bayview Glen Church this year is going to be for the city, work on behalf of the city, seek the welfare of the city, we're not saying something new. We're saying something very, very old. You see, from the beginning of time, God has been about redemption and restoration even within the context of the city. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, the writer of Genesis' the scripture tells us that God placed original man and original woman, his creation, in a garden. And Tim Keller points out, a theologian, a scholar that we've talked about in here a number of times, that that word for garden in the original Hebrew is not like a rural farm outside of a city It's like a co-op, an organic garden, or a city park. It's like Central Park. It's within the context of a city, within the context of an urban environment. Fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 29, and Jeremiah, which we'll read here momentarily. We read it last week. Jeremiah exhorts the exiles living in the city of Babylon to seek the welfare of what? The city. Then when Jesus enters into his city, Jerusalem, for the very last time on a day we call Palm Sunday and celebrate, he looks out over the city and the Bible says that he weeps for what? The city. Because of the brokenness, because of the dysfunction, because of the hurt that he sees in this great city that he loves. Fast forward to when Jesus is going to return. The book of Revelation says that there will be a new city that descends in which we live In together. See, God has always been for the city. And so when we work for the city on behalf of the city, understand that this is not novel, this is not fresh. Indeed, it's very, very, very old. We are joining God in His grand redemptive plan that He started from the beginning of time, that He continues now, and that He promises to finish one day when Jesus returns. And what happens, I think, is we tell ourselves that being for the city has to be complicated. We have to start institutions and we have to do for profit organizations. We've got to start new ministry initiatives and we've got to have some organization and some people on board and involved and we've got to have all of our ducks in a row and all of our things in place and it's maybe a little too complicated, it's maybe a little too complex, but I want you to know that being for the city is very, very simple. It is not complex. It's simple, but it's not easy. You ever heard that term before? Ever heard that language before? It's simple but not easy. I feel like it's a little bit like the Olympics. Did you guys enjoy the Olympics? I love the Olympics. Here's the thing about the Olympics. It's interesting to me that most of those events are really, really simple, aren't they? Like take take the 100-meter dash, for example. Here's how the 100-meter dash works. We're going to line all you guys up, and then we're going to shoot a gun. And when we shoot the gun... You start running. See, I'm American. We do that anyway. I mean, we know that when a gun goes off, you start running. You don't have to tell me that. That's simple. The second thing when it comes to the 100-meter dash is you've got to get to that line before any of these guys get to that line. That's not complicated, is it? That's not complex. But it is Challenging. It does take sweat. It does take work. It does take training. It does take practice. It's a lot like being for the city. It is simple, but it's not easy. It's not complex, but it does take work. It does take time. It does take commitment. And it's funny but that being for the city according to Jeremiah chapter 29 has two aspects just like the 100 meter dash by the way. We shoot the gun and you run and get to that line before everybody else. But there's no gun in Jeremiah 29. So that's great. So here's what it means to be for the city. Two aspects we talked about them last week. The first is to transform the city. Actually that's the second and that's what we're going to talk about next week. That's eventually where we want to get to to city transformation. But the first aspect and the first step towards city transformation, joining God in this grand redemptive plan that he started from the beginning of time is simply living in the city. It's just living in the city. It's just putting roots down here where we are. So here's what we're gonna do today. Here's my goal, here's my aim. I wanna make living in the city, this first step, again, towards joining God in his grand redemptive plan. I wanna make this very simple for us. And I don't warn you in advance, it's not easy. It takes sweat, it takes commitment, it takes effort, but it's very, very simple to understand what it means to put roots down here. And this really is the first step towards living. Life in the city and eventually city transformation for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. I want to make it really simple for us today and give you some practical tools towards moving towards life in the city. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. It's going to be a moment before we get there. And read directly from the text, but I want you to have your Bibles open for when we get there. And as you're flipping through, I want to set up the context once again. Remember, this is about the 6th or 7th century B.C., towards the end of the 7th, the beginning of the 6th. I mean, we know exactly when it was, but it took the, the, it, um, this transpired in this letter from Jeremiah and his ministry happened over the course of years. And during that, those years, a portion of the nation of Israel was living in exile in Babylon. They were living in exile in Babylon because the nation of Israel had deviated from God's plan. They had gone their own way and they had rejected God. And God, like a good father, had said, come back, come back, come back. And they didn't come back, they didn't come back. And finally he said, all right, now I'm going to have to discipline you. And he sends his disciplinary method and that is the nation of Israel. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and they conquered the nation of Israel and take Israel's cream of the crop, their best leaders, their king, the king's mom, the metal workers, the craftsmen, the artisans, the politicians, the leaders, takes them all back to the city of Babylon where they are living in exile from Jerusalem. Now, we didn't talk about this last week, but here's what happens. A number of false prophets show up, and they begin to say things like, hey, those of you who are living in exile in Babylon, you don't really need to put roots down. You don't really need to make this city your home. You don't really need to make an effort. You don't really need to work on behalf of the city. And they're going, well, why not? And they're saying, because God is going to intervene, and he's going to intervene very soon, and he's going to take you back to Jerusalem. So you keep your eyes on what's to come. You keep your eyes on what God has in mind for you in the future. There's nothing really you can do now. You need to focus on what's to come. And so they uprooted from the city. They left the city. They abandoned the city. They didn't engage in culture at all because they were always looking forward to what's to come. Now watch this. Do we not do this as Christians today? So we think... Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for heaven. I'm just, I'm just you know, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I've said yes to Jesus in repentance and faith. And I know eventually God is going to come back and take me home. So I don't really need to engage in culture around me. I don't really need to engage in relationships around me. I don't need to really make an effort to be a part of this city. And I want you to know that we do the gospel a disservice when we say that. We do God a disservice when we say that. Think about this. Did God really send his own son one and only son, to die the death that you were meant to die and that I was meant to die so that our eternal destiny would change and that's it? No. Of course that's part of it, but God sent his son to inaugurate a kingdom and to restore all things to his original plan. And then watch this, then watch this, he goes, now you join me in it. You join me in that redemptive plan. You join me in that plan of grace. You join me in that restoration. And he's doing the same thing with the nation of Israel six or seven hundred years before Jesus comes around. He's saying, join me in working for the welfare of the city. Join me in seeing my redemptive work take place here. Join me in this plan for restoration. Don't look towards what's next. I've got you here for a purpose. I've called you here in the here and now. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar who did it, the king of Babylon. It's me. In my sovereignty, I have you here in the here and now. Now, I love that the false prophet who told them, you don't pay attention to the city, you just wait till God comes and gets you, he's dead before the end of Jeremiah 28. I think that's funny. That's beside the point. So, all right, so here's the deal when Jesus comes around, the nation of Israel is still making some of those same mistakes they're still making some of the same mistakes that they made six or 700 years before. They are abandoning the city. They're criticizing the city. Rather than engaging in culture, they're just assimilating into culture and disappearing. There's all kinds of groups of people, six or 700 years later, again by the time Jesus comes around, that are doing the exact same thing and making the same mistake. Anybody, are you, do you make the same mistake over and over again like I do sometimes? Okay, so you might think, I don't know if I make the same mistake over and over again. Here's the one I always make. I never know where I park at the airport. Ever. No idea. I park my car and I call my wife. I gotta tell her, B5, you gotta remember, because I'm not gonna remember. And it's every time. I I asked my wife in the first service, she was here in the first service, I asked her, does this happen every time? She says, Yes, babe, it happens every time. Same mistake over and over. One time, one time, Marilyn, I had to hitchhike. In the, in the parking garage, because I was tired of walking around. I needed somebody to pick me up and drive me around, a stranger, so I could find my car. This is not a joke. I make the same mistake over and over. This is what happens with God's people. We make the same mistake over and over and over again. So when Jesus comes around, there's still a group of people that are making these mistakes over and over again. One of them is called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees didn't like the city they lived in. They didn't like the culture that they lived in. And here was their solution. We're going to abandon the city and create our own little city. We're going to create our own little culture with our own little rules and our own little dress code. (gasps) We don't like the justice system. Let's create our own. I mean, they completely created their own city and totally disengaged from the city around them. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, be salty, The salt can't get salty once it's become unsalty. He's talking to the Pharisees. You've lost your taste. You've lost your seasoning. You've lost your preservative power because you've totally disengaged from the city. There's a group of people called the Essenes. They disengaged from the city too. But (laughs) instead of just creating a city within a city like the Pharisees did, they just left. The Essenes did. They were living in monastic communities outside of the city. They wouldn't talk to anybody in the city. They wouldn't engage with culture at all. They just went out in the middle of nowhere and did their own thing. Then there were a group of people called the Zealots. I like these guys. They were violent. Again, I'm American. That's what we do. Okay? Sorry. I'm kidding. Sorry, Americans. Or sorry, as you would say in Canada. So there's a group of people called the Zealots, and they didn't like the city either. They didn't like the culture either. And instead of creating a city within a city like the Pharisees did, and instead of abandoning the city geographically like the Essenes did, the Zealots just took up arms. The Zealots just wielded swords. The Zealots, at any point, were ready to fight back against the city. It's fascinating to me that Jesus had followers from all three of these groups. Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Saul, who became Paul and wrote the majority of the New Testament, they were Pharisees. A lot of scholars suggest that John the Baptist was in a scene. Jesus had two disciples named Simon, one Simon Peter, and the other distinguished by his affiliation, Simon the Zealot. And could you imagine their dismay? Could you imagine their confusion? When all they had done was abandon the city, leave the city, disengage from culture, and Jesus shows up and all he wants to do is engage with people. Could you imagine how that would have shocked them? Could you imagine that when Jesus starts his public ministry, the Pharisees might have expected him to do it within the context of a religious culture? Or the Essenes might have expected him to do it out in the middle of nowhere? Or the zealots might have expected him to do it with a sword. But Jesus didn't do any of those things, did he? He turned water into wine at a wedding. Jesus had a job. He had a craft. He was a carpenter. He contributed to the economic welfare of the city. He engaged with the city. Jesus was with people all the time. All kinds of different people from all kinds of different walks of life. So much so that Matthew tells us this. Look up here on the screen. He tells us that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's, this is what they say about Jesus. This is how much he engaged with people. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, who they accused him of because he spent so much time with people, and a what? Say this word with me, friend, of tax collectors and sinners. A friend of the lonely, a friend of the broken, a friend of the outcast. Not just someone who talks to them on occasion. Not just someone who invites them to church on occasion. Jesus was their friend. So when you and I talk about what it means to engage in city life, we take a cue from Jesus. Because a lot of churches have not taken a cue from Jesus. A lot of believers have not taken a cue from Jesus. See, we do the same thing the Pharisees do and the Zealots do and the Essenes do. We do the same thing that the nation of Israel did in exile in Babylon. We retreat. We take a defensive posture towards the culture. We we might not be ready to wield a literal sword, but we wield a figurative sword and we fight back against culture. And everybody knows what we're against and nobody knows what we're for. And Jesus comes along and he says, No, 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 no. This is what it means to live the Jesus way. This is what it means to engage in the city. This is what it means to live in the city and see city transformation. And it's in one word, one word only. Here it is it's relationships. It's relationships. It's being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's being kind to people. City transformation is not about institutions and organizations. It's not about not-for-profits. All those things are good. I'm fine with that. City transformation happens within the context of relationships. People, individuals, loving one another well, serving one another, showing grace to one another. Think about this for a minute. Think about how critical relationships are. I just want you to think. You know, listen, listen and let it sink in. Our city has a whole lot of resources, doesn't it? Compared, compared to the rest of the world. Compared to the rest of the world. We're like in the 99th, percentile or whatever it is. We have enough resources to pay the air conditioning bill in here today, thank God. And the heating bill in a couple of months. We have enough resources to live in homes and to wear clothes and to feed ourselves. That's more than 95% of the world, by the way. We have resources for education. We have resources for transit. We have resources for all kinds of different things. But there's one resource that money can't buy. You know what it is? It's grace. Grace, by its very definition, is unearned. Favor that someone cannot purchase And the only way that we can demonstrate grace to give this great city what it so desperately needs and cannot buy on its own, it has to happen in the context of relationships. Let's put it this way, that our province and our great city is economically and financially resource rich. It's relationally impoverished, isn't it, when it comes to relationships. Men and women, there are maybe a lot of people out there that can do what you can do. So you can't offer something unique in terms of what you can do. I love you, but a lot of people out there can do what you can do. There are probably a lot of people out there who have what you have. A lot of people out there have less. A lot of people out there have more. But there is one thing and one thing only that only you have. And what is that? It's you. It's you. This is why relationships are so critical. Because when you offer yourself to someone in relationship, you're offering something that they can't get anywhere else but from you. This is why relationships were so critical for the mission of Jesus. Because Jesus knew that the one thing that he could offer them was himself in relationship. That they couldn't get anywhere else. This is why God has been a relational God from the very beginning. You see, life in this city isn't about geography. It's not about, oh yeah, I've got a house on Bayview and Shepherd. i got an apartment down on King. Or I live up in Aurora. Or I'm here in Markham or Richmond Hill. It's not about geography. Planting ourselves in the city, putting roots down, and having life here in this city is all about relationships. So here's what I want to do. I want to make it very, very simple for us together and give us some very practical tools to begin to develop and make investment in And build up a savings account, so to speak, of the only currency that we've got, and that's the relational currency. I want to give us four tools, four really easy tools, things that you may even already be doing. You're like, oh, great. The pastor's going to tell me to do some stuff I'm already doing. Awesome. That rules. I don't even have to change. Right. Right. That's right. For a lot of this, you might not even have to change at all. Just see it from God's perspective and understand that he has given us these four things for the sake of relationship and for the sake of city transformation and gospel ministry. And those four practical tools is where we're, we're going to grab those from our anchor text in Jeremiah 29. Back to Jeremiah 29. Here we go. Practical tool number one for developing relationships within the city. Look at the context of who Jeremiah is writing to. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 29.2. He says he's about to write this letter to the exiles in Babylon, and he says he writes the letter, what? After King Jeconiah and the queen mother, like if you were the king and you were going into exile because another country had just conquered you, would you be happy or sad that they were taking your mom with you? Like some of us may not have a great relationship with our mom. It's like, you know what? Just leave her there. This is, what I just, this is what I think when I read the Bible. Okay, keep going. The eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So listen here. Look, look real close. Who has departed from Jerusalem? They're in Babylon. Who is it? Metalworkers, craftsmen, officials, eunuchs, king Jeconiah, and the queen mother. These are people with skills. These are people with vocations. These are people with abilities. These are people that were contributing to the well-being of society. They had vocations. They, They were working in the context of Jerusalem, and now they've been exiled to Babylon. And look at what the very first thing that Jeremiah says to those people that he's writing to that are in exile in Babylon. It's up here on the screen. He says, build homes and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, what he's saying is what you have already done vocationally, you keep doing. Keep planting gardens. Keep investing in real estate. Keep being a metal worker or a craftsman or an, or an official. Uh, eunuch here, just so you know, that's like, a, that's like the queen's security guard. Okay, so it was like a security force. Uh, if RCMP people, any RCMP people here? Okay, you're, you're, you're the modern eunuchs, uh, RCMP people. It, it really has been great working here because um, what I just said probably is going to get me fired. That's beside the point. point is, here's what Jeremiah is saying to the exiles in Babylon. He's saying, work in the city. Work in the city. Get a job. Do your craft. Create. Build a house. Plant a garden. Be a metal worker. Invest in real estate. Do what it is you're already called to do. And again, this work, this vocation, this craft that we've been given for the good of the city, this is not a new thing. Remember that when God created original man, original woman, he put, it in the, put them in the garden. What did he give them? A task, a job. Name the animals, till the ground. He gave them a job. And he gave them a job for the sake of redemption and restoration and moving his creation forward as he intended it. So when, when God encourages the exiles, exhorts the exiles through Jeremiah to work in the city, this is what he's doing. He's inviting them to work for the good of the city and the transformation of the city for the sake of the gospel. Practically speaking, this makes a whole lot of sense too. Because if you have a full-time job, you spend on average nine hours a day at work. The only thing you do for as much time, of, like is even close to that, is sleeping. <laughs> you spend more time at work than you do in leisure activities, with family, with anything else, if you have a full time job. So, what God is saying is leverage your vocation for the sake of city restoration. Leverage your vocation for the city. I was having lunch with a guy. Um, I don't know, four or five weeks ago, a guy from Bayview who's in the first service here. Uh, He's probably close to 70. He's got enough money to retire. He's had businesses and built homes and done all the things that Jeremiah 29 says. And I said, why haven't you actually retired? And I I wouldn't mention his name just because I don't, you know, just for confidentiality, whatever. I said, why haven't you retired? Why aren't you just golfing? Why aren't you just living in Florida? Like, that's what I would do if I had what you had and, you know. And he said, Luke, God has called me to work here. So I continue to work. He just started a new business, doing really well, by the way. And the new business that he started is blessing the city, is transforming the city. He's developing relationships all the time. He was telling me about multiples of them at at lunch that day. I got this gal going through a divorce. I got this guy working for me going through depression. And he's able within the context of his vocation to see relationships do what they do. And do the restorative work of the kingdom. Here's what Jeremiah is saying to us today. You're a creator, create. You're an artisan, do art. You're a musician, play music. You're a salesman, sell stuff. You're an attorney, argue well. (laughs) Whatever it is. For the sake of the city and for the good of the kingdom. Number two, look what else Jeremiah says to the exiles. Here we go. Look what else he says to the exiles. It's up here on the screen. At least it should be. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What is Jeremiah telling the exiles here? He's telling them to be a family in the city. Be a family in the city. Get married. Have kids. And when your kids get married and they have kids, do that in the context of the city of Babylon where I have called you into exile. That godless city that has no family values needs to see my family values. And the only way that they're going to see that is if you live them out in front of them. Be a family in the city. Look at the way Paul says it in Ephesians 3. Watch this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's saying, I'm praying to God on your behalf. And, and what does he say about the Father? From whom every, say that word with me, family in heaven and on earth is named. You see, in God's kingdom perspective, part of his kingdom values are family Values And within the context of family, there's mutual love and respect, mutual submission, care and tenderness for one another. There's people showing grace to one another, showing others favor that they wouldn't otherwise deserve or didn't otherwise deserve. I know that for a fact because my parents had to do that a lot for me. This is what it means to live out God's family values To the people. This is why we have family at all, because God, our Heavenly Father, defined it that way. He gave us these values to live out in our city. And you may think, you know what? I don't know if that's a real You know, is that that an evangelistic tool? Is that a tool that God could use? Just me being married and me parenting my kids and me hanging out with other families in the context of the city. Is that something God could use for his redemptive plan? Absolutely. I talked to some friends um, a couple weeks ago. Their names are Kevin and Grace. And many of you know their last name. I'm not going to say their last name because I'm on video. And Kevin and Grace are uh, international workers in the Arabian Peninsula. I've talked to Kevin and Grace multiple times. They're, they're real good friends of, of mine and Amy's. And in the country that they're in, the family values that they see lived out in that city and in that culture don't match biblical family values. We understand that? You with me? What they see in other families don't match biblical family values. But it's illegal To proselytize there. It's illegal to share the gospel. It's illegal to walk up to somebody on the street and say, Hey, have you heard of the four spiritual laws? So, Kevin and Grace have told me multiple times that their primary evangelistic tool is their family, it's the way they love one another, the way they care for one another the way they submit to one another, the the way that grace maintains her identity and poise as a woman, the way that Kevin is faithful to grace, the way they parent their kids. And people are going, man, that's different than what I'm used to. And they're going, yeah, it's because we serve a heavenly father from whom every family on earth has derived its name. See, they're doing God's redemptive work just by being a family in the city. Think of all the statistics that we talked about last week in terms of prostitution, in terms of children in foster care, in terms of children in poverty in the city. Think about all the divorce rates. Think about all those statistics in this great city that that we are seeking to see changed for the sake of the gospel and how many of those would not be the case if what? If our families were modeled after biblical values. This is what it means to be a family in the city and seek God's redemptive plan. One tip, moms and dads, especially young moms and dads. Stop putting your kids in Christian activities. (gasps) Did he just say that? Yep, I did. You know why? Because there are people around you that need to see your family live out biblical values in front of them. They need to see you parent well. They need to see you love your spouse well. They need to see you interact and be an agent of God's redemptive plan and grace. And that happens when you're just a family in the city. So enroll your kids in swimming. Do they have water here that isn't frozen sometimes during the year? Okay. And enroll your kids in curling. That's frozen stuff. Enroll your kids in ice fishing and in hockey and in ice sculpting. We, we do all that stuff. At least it's coming, isn't it? Go be a family in the city and watch God do the work of the kingdom in and through your family. Let's keep going. Look what else, that, look what else uh, Jeremiah says to the exiles. He says, but seek the welfare of the city... Where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. We talked about this last week that this word welfare is repeated three times in Jeremiah 29 7. In the original language, the word is shalom. It might be translated peace in your Bible or prosperity in your Bible. It's translated welfare in the English Standard Version. But the best way I know how to define this biblical word for shalom is. Complete and total human flourishing. Seek the welfare, seek the total flourishing of your city physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, every aspect of what an individual deals with, social, systemic. This is total and complete shalom, total and complete human flourishing. This is why Jesus, in his ministry, doesn't just talk about a disembodied soul going to heaven one day when you die. But he heals people and he feeds people and he's kind to people. Why? Because God's kingdom is about shalom. It's about complete and total human flourishing. And the only way that we can do that, seek the shalom and the total and complete human flourishing of this great city, is to serve the city. To serve the city. To sacrifice and put our needs aside And come alongside the hungry and feed them. Come alongside uh, people and, and clothe them and give them shelter. Come alongside those who can't speak English well or struggle with English skills. And so they're not able to avail themselves of the resources that they need to feed their families. And teach them how to speak English. It's just serving the city and seeking the welfare of the city. And when you serve the city, now watch this. When you serve the city, God will give you relationships that you could have never dreamed of on your own for the sake of gospel renewal and reconciliation and redemption. A friend of mine here at at Bayview, again, I'll just tell you a couple stories about Bayview people who are doing this. Um, She'd been at Bayview for a long time now. She serves here. She attends here. She's not 30 yet and she spends a lot of her time outside of this corporate gathering on Sunday serving everywhere in the city. She serves at soup kitchens. She serves at shelters. And she was serving recently at a women's shelter here in town about nine months ago, and she met a woman who is a refugee and coming out of a very difficult marriage and difficult situation, uh, a refugee from another country. And I said, how did you meet this gal? How did you meet this woman? She said, you know what's interesting? I just offered to paint her toenails. Really? So you just served her and just developed a relationship? Well, that's a novel idea. Come to find out this woman really has no church background, really no spiritual background. She's obviously in a shelter, so she's in a difficult situation and a difficult time in her life. There's some brokenness there. She came to my friend and said, you know what, I'm a, I'm a lesbian, and my friend is thinking to herself, you know, that doesn't match my biblical values, that doesn't match my family values, but I still want to love you, I still want to serve you, I still want to show grace to you. And my friend has told me, uh, I called her yesterday just to make sure this story is accurate here, but I, I said to her, I said, look, was there ever a time where you were thinking to yourself, this has become challenging, this has become difficult? She's going, yes, every day. She she said, you know what, though, It, it is difficult at times. It takes sweat and it takes commitment, but what I can do in terms of serving her, that's always been very, very simple. And I said, how's that? She says, well, I can always buy an iced cap with extra whip from Tim Hortons, and I can buy one for her, and I can sit and listen. And that's what she's done. She served her. She just sat and listened, developed a relationship And that woman came to this church for the first time. She'd never been to church at all before in her life last Sunday. After nine months just of serving and relationship, serving and relationship, this is what it means to see transformation in the city. Now watch this. She left after church, and she said, I felt so loved there. Now isn't that awesome? And Lord knows it's not me. Don't laugh at that now. It's people like my friends serving her. It's people like our greeters smiling at her when she comes in the door. It's people like our ushers going, "Hey, I can help you find a seat." It's people all over our children's ministry and everybody on this campus saying, "I'm just here to serve." It's my friend saying, "Can I just paint your toenails for you? I'm here to serve." And God gave her a relationship that's now transformative. Just a little commercial real quick. Two weeks from today, we're doing what's called Serve Sunday. We're going to give you opportunities to engage in service here at Bayview Glen. We don't do it for our health. We don't do it because we think it's what churches ought to do. We do it because there are people who are walking through our doors each and every Sunday morning, and any day could be their day. Any day could be their day. And because we're in it for the city we want to serve the city. So in two weeks, when we talk about that, you will sign up and serve. All right, here we go. Last one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Not really, but you know what I mean. Last one. Here we go. Look what else Jeremiah says to the exiles. He says, but seek the welfare, the shalom of the city. Or I've sent you into exile and do what? Say that word, pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know, here's the deal with praying for the city. I think if you're a Christian and if you've been around church for a while and you read your Bible, you know you ought to pray. You know the Bible commands you to pray. Sometimes, here's the deal for me, I don't always know what to pray for. You ever get to that point? You're like, man, you know, I know I, I pray for the leaders in my city maybe or pray. Like what what about my friend whose marriage is breaking down and... And they're having struggles and difficulty. What about this neighbor who, you know, they've got a a kid who's gone haywire or a child who's transgender and they're trying to figure that out. Like, how do I pray for those people? Do I pray for God's conviction? Uh, Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin and guilt. So the conviction piece is probably above your pay grade is my guess. So here's what Jeremiah says to us. This is great. He says, pray, go back one slide, pray for the welfare of the city. And pray to the Lord, what? On its behalf. So here's what Jeremiah is instructing us to do. Pray blessing. Pray good things. This is not this this kind of wish thing that we we toss a coin in a fountain or rub a, a lamp and a genie comes out. It's not one of those things. It's going before the God of the universe and saying, God, I pray for this person who's struggling with physical ailments that you would heal them. God, I pray for this person who's got a transgender child and they're having a difficult time relating and interacting with them that you would heal that relationship, oh God, and you would give them closeness and connection. God, I pray for this person that's struggling with their sexuality that you would give them clarity and hope and that you would use me as an instrument of your grace. I pray for good things for them. I just right, to start, somebody on the way here to church this morning sharing the gospel with an Uber driver, for crying out loud. Like, I pray for this person. I pray good things for them. I pray success for them. I pray that they would prosper in their business. I pray to you, God, on their behalf. And as you do that, as you pray, as you serve, as you work in the city, you'll see God give you opportunities for relationship that might be transformative and change the city, change an individual and change the city forever. I want to introduce you to a a girl named Faith. A picture of Faith up here on the screen. Faith came to Bayview Glen for the first time uh, this last summer. She came for week one of our Esther series. How many of you are here for our Esther series? Talk about Esther. Good, four of you, perfect. Um, We just don't want to raise our hands this morning, that's okay. Uh, Faith doesn't really have a... A spiritual background or a church background. She hadn't been around church at all, really. And uh, her mom is a single mom, and she met a guy who attends church here. Her her mom met a guy who t- uh, attends church here, a guy that I've known since I started here, day one, good guy. Uh, if you spoke to him, you, he might tell you, he, he likely would tell you, that he doesn't always have all the right answers spiritually, and he doesn't know all the Bible passages, and all that stuff. And doesn't, you know, his life isn't super Christian life. But what he does have is, is relationships. He has a relationship with this gal, and he's got a relationship with her daughter, Faith. And so he said to them, Come, come to church, come to Bayview. And so they did. They came week one of the Esther series. And this young girl at 14 years old heard about a God who loved her. She heard about a young woman named Esther who became queen in Persia at about the age that faith is, 14, 15 years old. She heard about Esther facing very dire circumstances, very difficult situation with poise and grace and courage. She heard about a God who was on Esther's team, even though Esther was afraid, a God that was in control, a God that was sovereign, a God that supported her. And at the end of the service, faith said to uh, her mom and to my friend, uh, what, what are we doing next week? And they said, well, we're, we're not coming back here. We're going to the cottage. We've got an activity. We've got whatever. And she said, oh, no, we're not. I got to hear about what happens with Esther. I got to come back and hear about this woman because this is fascinating. I love this. Uh, two weeks ago on a Thursday, Faith turned 15. And the next day on a Friday, Faith lost her long battle with cancer. Faith's life was changed because of relationship, because someone loved her enough to extend an invitation, because someone loved her enough to show grace. Not because someone argued her down, not because someone proved that God exists, not because someone had all the right answers and could flip in the Bible and show, but just because someone had a relationship with her and loved her and showed her grace. And I can't help but think that when faith heard about a young woman named Esther who faced difficult situations just like she was facing, who was afraid just like she was afraid, but there was a God who loved her and was in control and was on her team and had her in the palm of her hand no matter what, that her life was changed. And it was all about relationships. This is what it means to work for the welfare of the city. To come here, to worship, to give God glory, and then to leave this place and engage in relationships, live in the city such that God uses us as an agent of his transformative grace. Pray with me. God, the first thing that's on my heart is Faith's mom and my friend, Faith's dad, and his significant other as well. God, that you would be near to them, that you would comfort them, that you would use this church and congregation, the people of Bayview Glen, to be a support to them, to come alongside and love no matter where they're at. Thank you, God, that you have faith in the palm of your hand. Thank you for the relationship that you gave to my friend so that faith could hear about a God that loved her and was in control. God, we want to be those kind of people here when someone who's transgender walks through our doors, when someone who comes from an abusive background walks through our doors, when a couple who is struggling walks through our doors. For our addicted neighbor, for our depressed coworker, for the kid in our school that's sitting alone. God, open our eyes to these moments. We can dig our roots deep here in this city with relationships. Not geography, not physical location, but with relationships. Give us the eyes to see your work and your kingdom coming as we're for this city this year. In Christ's name, amen. As we conclude our worship this morning, our ushers are going to come forward to receive what's called a benevolent offering. A benevolent offering really is just for the city. It's an opportunity for us to give above and beyond what we've uh, already set aside in our hearts to give to our church and to the ministry here. And the entirety of this offering, the benevolent offering, goes to meet needs of people who are in crisis here in our community of faith and in the surrounding greater Toronto area. And so we worship together and give together. Please don't feel obligated to do so. This is just once a month we do this as kind of a tradition here to meet the needs of this great city. We pray that God's kingdom would come as we worship him through song and giving.